Well, good morning. How are you guys doing? Man, you guys are, you even lost an hour of sleep and you're like, you're ready to go. I love that. That's amazing. Well, um, well, my name is Trey Dove and I am the uh, spiritual formation pastor here at Hutto Bible Church. Many of you may already know that. I say that every time I get the opportunity to preach because there may be some folks who are new who maybe don't know that. And so if that is you, welcome. I'm really glad you're here and I hope I get the chance to meet you this morning. While we're not finishing the book of Daniel, we are beginning our final descent through the book of Daniel. And so we are going to be in Daniel chapters 10 and 11. And so if you've got a copy of the scriptures, I want to invite you to meet me there in Daniel chapters 10 and 11. And as you find your place in your copy of the scriptures, I I do want to make it a point this morning, at least on the front end of everything, to prepare you, to prepare us for this text, especially if you're the type of person who likes answers. If you're the type of person who likes answers and expects answers and wants definitive clarity when you approach the Word of God, I'm going to just tell you that you might be a little frustrated with me this morning because there's going to be more than once throughout this where I just say, I, I just don't know. <laughs> I just don't know. And, and I'm saying that to be honest because there's, there are just some passages in the Word of God that we come across that they leave us with more questions than answers, right? And while wiser men and wiser women or at least more confident men and confident women might presume to have the answers to some of these passages, I just I candidly, I just don't. I don't know if I'm not as wise or as confident. It's maybe both, but I just don't have the answers. I wish I did. And, and again, I say that to just to make the point that uh, if, if, again, if you're someone who just, you're like, pastor, tell me what all of this means. I'm just, I'm going to frustrate you a little bit this morning, though I'm going to give you some of the options out there, okay? Now, there are some things in our text today, I will say, that are widely unanimously accepted. And so if you were to open up or crack a book, a commentary or whatever, if you're that kind of person, through the book of Daniel, there are large swaths of our passages this morning where everybody's in agreement. This is, this is pretty much what it means. Historically, this is what everyone said. And you're like, that's amazing. And then you're going to come to passages where everybody's in agreement that nobody agrees on what certain things in this text mean. And, and these are things that have kept believers busy for thousands of years, trying to just search the scriptures and look throughout history and figure out, okay, was this this and was this this? It's kept believers busy for thousands of years, and it will keep book publishers happy and rich and wealthy until Jesus comes back. So these are all important things. I'm going to say that. Things that we should pursue, we should would, should seek to understand, but some things are puzzling nonetheless. And so with that, as we wade into these waters, what I want to do is just set the table for us so that you're not terribly mad at me at the end of this, okay? Set the table for us with a few principles to keep in mind this morning. Here's the first principle. According to Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord and the revealed things belong to us. Amen. So there are things that we encounter in the Word of God, especially when you get to prophetic texts and apocalyptic texts where, candidly, we just don't know the answer, and I don't think we're meant to. We're just not meant to know exact the exact answer. There are things that are abundantly clear in the Word of God, and then there are things that are less clear, things that we work really hard to understand, but at the end of the day, we submit our own understanding to the one who holds all knowledge. And then... 
a few more principles, at least as it pertains to prophetic texts and apocalyptic literature in the Bible. There are a few things that prophecy and apocalypse, in in terms of as, as a genre of literature in the Bible, a few things that they are always trying to accomplish. Here's the first. They're always trying to make known the total control of God over all of history and everything that happens. So all of history and all happenings, right? And so by that, I mean that God is totally, totally sovereign over all of human history and he guides it and he directs it towards his glorious end. And he uses actions and decisions of men to accomplish his purposes. And so when we deal with prophetic texts, we often step into the tension that exists between the total sovereignty of God and the responsibility of men, right? Nonetheless, What we're always, always meant to understand is that God is in total control. While we may not get how those things live together, again, the secret things belong to the Lord. That's not for us to totally understand, but we submit that understanding to the the totality of God's sovereign reign and rule. The second principle is that prophecy and, and apocalypse, especially when it comes to the word of God, it's always meant to strengthen and stiffen the people of God. And by that, I mean that God's revelation is never given to the people of God in order to stir up fear or chaos, to to sort of force the people of God to like crumble in on themselves because of how scary things are going to be. That's never the point of biblical prophecy or or apocalyptic literature. Instead, it's often to to strengthen the believer, to strengthen the person who, who believes in the Lord, to stiffen our spines in the midst of cultural pressure, opposition, and suffering. I think about Paul's encouragement to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1 when he says, for God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. Right after that, the verses that come right after verse 7 in 2 Timothy 1, Paul then encourages Timothy, um, don't be afraid of identifying with Jesus. Actually, like you're going to participate in his sufferings, but he's called us to a holy calling. So don't be afraid, participate in his sufferings sufferings, identify with him because this is a holy calling that he's called us to. And so even when the Lord reveals things to his people that that seem devastating and bleak, events that are, are typically on the horizon, the point is always to embolden the people of God and to stand to stand firm in the midst of it, not to burden them to the point where they just fold and crumble. And then the third principle, especially with prophetic texts, is that they are always One of the things they're always trying to accomplish is that they're always trying to move the people of God to faithful action. And so biblical prophecy, it always requires a response from the people of God. Or as Pastor Michael mentioned last week, like we saw Daniel reading the prophet Jeremiah potentially for the first time. And what does it do? It it, it moves him to, to pray right? This, this prayer of confession for the people of Israel, it moves him. And so when God speaks, when thus saith the Lord happens, the people of God are required and necessitates a response on the part of God's people. Okay. Are we good on those principles? Cool. I've stalled long enough. So let's get into Daniel chapter 10. We're going to cover chapter 10 and 11, which means I'm going to cover a lot of ground and I'm going to skip giant swaths of it. But But hang with me, okay? Be gracious and patient with me. Daniel chapter 10, starting in verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel 
who was named Belteshazzar, and the word was true, and it was a great conflict, and he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. And so here in the first three verses of chapter 10, Daniel locates us contextually and historically here, right? He says, this vision comes in the third year of King Cyrus's reign over Babylon, which is actually a really significant detail because in the first year, according to the book of Ezra, in the first year of Cyrus's reign, a decree went out. From Cyrus, a decree went out basically releasing all of the Jews to return to Israel. And so the people of God were free to go home. And that's significant, right? That's, I mean, you think of how long they've been in exile. Daniel's been here since he was just like a boy, like a preteen boy. He's in his 80s now. And you have to wonder, at least I do, like what emotion might Daniel have experienced when the word went out? Like the decree went out. Like you're free to go. You're free to return to Jerusalem. Like I wonder, did he expect to go home? I mean, surely he at least hoped to go home, right? Like you would think that Daniel would have loved to have been afforded the opportunity to return to Jerusalem to live out the remainder of his days. And yet, many have speculated and wondered, why didn't he go home? Because we find him on the banks of the Tigris. We find him still in Babylon. And so many have asked the question, well, why didn't Daniel go home? Um, some have said maybe it was just his age. He was, he'd gotten to the point where traveling that far would have just really taken a toll on his body. Maybe he just physically couldn't do it. Others have, have said, well, perhaps it was just uh, Daniel had been instructed by the Lord, hey, you're actually to stay here. You're not going back. You're staying here. I again, I don't know. <laughs> we don't know for sure. But here's what we do know is that when we meet Daniel on the banks of the Tigris, we find that he's been praying and fasting for three weeks. Surprise, surprise. There's a lot of people who wonder, why was he praying? Why was he fasting? What was he praying and fasting for? Um, I'm convinced that Daniel was praying and fasting for the restorative work in Jerusalem specifically the rebuilding of the temple by Ezra and Nehemiah. Like Sinclair Ferguson notes that this project would have required an enormous amount of labor, activity, busyness, time, and would be met with some opposition. He writes, Sinclair Ferguson, that what these leaders needed most, as Moses had done before, was someone who'd engage in the hidden but strategic work of prayer for the defense and advance of the kingdom of God. And so I, I mean... You can imagine for a moment that Daniel in his 80s receives the news that, that the people of God have been freed to go home, and then maybe he's even heard, maybe from the Lord, maybe just, you know, little birdies chirping, I don't know, but maybe he's heard, you know what, God's actually raised up some men to, to kind of lead that effort in Ezra and Nehemiah to rebuild the temple. Perhaps he's heard that God has raised them up, and he's, he's praying and he's fasting for the work that he will not get to be a part of, but that he knows God is going to do through this generation of leaders. Sinclair Ferguson goes on to say, what is so remarkable, remarkable about Daniel here is the way in which he consecrated himself to the advance of God's kingdom, even though he was not directly involved in the rebuilding of the temple, nor would he even live to see it. That is the hallmark of true faith and commitment that he believed but did not receive what was promised. He prayed for blessing that he would never personally witness. So verse five, text goes on. 
I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like a barrel, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. You may not be surprised there's a lot of conversation about who this man might be. I don't have time to go into it, so I'll let you do that one. But Daniel's response to the unnamed man is to fall on his face in fear and reverence. That is until he's awakened by a touch, the touch of a hand. Verse 12, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard and I have come because of your words. And here's, I want you to, I want you to, if you're not paying attention, clue in here, verse 13, because we, this is interesting. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for the days yet to come. And then check out verse 18. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me, and he said, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. And he, as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. And he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. So Daniel 10 is fascinating. For a few reasons. One, um, the final vision that we receive, that we get to read about in the book of Daniel, is actually the, the last three chapters. Really, chapter 11 and 12, those are the vision. Chapter 10 is, a, is an introduction to this final vision. And it's fascinating because, again, apocalyptic literature does this. It, it, one of its functions is to sort of pull back the curtain of reality, to pull back the veil um, into reality, these things that we aren't able to necessarily see with our own eyes or, or touch with our hands. The, these senses, these God-given natural senses that we have, they're incapable of, of of seeing kind of what's happening around us in this unseen reality. Or to, to say it more simply or to say it differently, there's more than what you and I can actually perceive. There's more happening even now than what you and I can see, can smell, can touch, can taste, can hear. Spirits. Spirits. Both good and bad. Angels and demons. The kingdom of darkness the kingdom of the beloved son, these are all realities that exist simultaneously to what we experience on a regular basis. And occasionally, occasionally, those two realities overlap. And when that happens, humanity, we, man, is able to perceive what's going on in this unseen reality for just a moment. We get a glimpse of it, right? And it happens, we see it happening throughout the Bible. The Bible's going to, to great lengths to make this clear. Now the messenger shows up to bring Daniel understanding, which Daniel presumably has been praying for. Understanding and, and clarity regarding, okay, what's, what's going to happen with the people of God? What's going to happen when they go back to Jerusalem and, and what, what does he hear? What does he say? This messenger shows up and he says, hey, I was duking it out with the prince of Persia for 21 days. But it's cool because Michael came, he freed me up, 
And, and so I'm able to come here, but I got to go back. And, and then the Prince of Greece is going to come. So does anybody else hear that and go, huh? Anybody? Okay. Yes. Amen. And all God's people said, right? All God's people said, what? And so again, we're getting a glimpse into these unseen realities. They're colliding in a moment. And, and this is what Paul describes in Ephesians 6 when he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so it would seem, according to Daniel 10, kind of bringing in Paul from Ephesians 6, it would seem that there are actual spirits, angels and demons, that reside or have a unique authority over like geographical locations for both good and bad, for better and for worse. And perhaps Daniel, perhaps Daniel as he's praying, perhaps he knew, maybe he didn't, but perhaps he knew that when he prayed that, that principalities and powers were actually moved to action. Again, maybe he didn't. Maybe he had no idea what was happening when he prayed. And so I want to ask you this question before we move forward this morning. Church, do you believe that your prayers matter? Like, do you, do you believe that prayer actually does something? Like, it actually makes a tangible difference in the world and in eternity? I love that some of you are saying yes, yes, resoundingly yes. I had hoped and expected that some of you in the room would, but my suspicion is that some of you in this room right now in your mind and in your heart are saying, I honestly don't know. From my experience, I don't know. I believe it here, but I don't know about right here. Like I'm, I'm kind of waiting to see what happens, honestly. Now, when some of us think about prayer, we might think specifically about the relational aspect, right? I mean, when we think about prayer, what do we think about? That it's a conversation between us and our Father, right? Between us and the Lord. And that's absolutely, beautifully, wonderfully true. Please, I'm not trying to overcomplicate prayer this morning. I promise you that. Prayer is, in fact, the people of God communing and talking to our Father who delights to hear and respond. That's ex- I mean, that's what prayer is, right? But some of us might think in terms of the relationship. Some of us might gravitate more towards the formative effect. Like when I, when I pray, God's doing something to me. It's not necessarily about what I'm, what I'm requesting, but it's about what God's doing to me so that God is actually forming me and shaping me. That when I, I come before him, I'm becoming more of a humble person, right? That he's uh, working by his spirit to realign my affections, to renew my mind, to, um, to just you know change my heart. And can I just say, that's also wonderfully, beautifully, gloriously true. God does that. He shapes his people when we come before him in prayer. He does something to you when you pray. But also, but also, we need to recognize the power and the influence of prayer in the world. When the people of God pray, whether it's, whether it's in the quietness of your heart on Sunday morning or whatever at work, or whether it's when you're uh, in your prayer room, your prayer closet, if you've got that and you've got sticky notes all over the wall, if you're that, if you're that person, great for you. Um, or maybe it's, maybe it's just when you're praying on the way to take your kids to school or to soccer practice or whatever. And they're kind of stressing you out and you're running late. Or when you're like coming home from work and you know that your wife's been at home or your husband's been at home and you've been working all day and you're tired and your kids are like, you know, you know what you're about to step into. And so you're like, Lord, help me not to just lose it when I walk in, right? Come on, sis. Regardless, regardless, those those prayers have power. 
And again, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to continue to say the secret things belong to the Lord. I don't pretend to fully understand the impact of prayers, uh, the prayers of God's people in redemptive history, but I think there's something to it when Paul says in Colossians 4 to continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Or like in Revelation 5, 8, the four living creatures and the 24 elders surround the throne and, and uh, they're, they're said to be holding a few things, but one's this golden bowl and it's full of the prayers of the saints which are rising before the Lord uh, as, as incense, as like a sweet aroma before the Lord. And so when the people of God pray, heaven and hell begin to shift in a way that I cannot explain to you. But I believe it's true and I think we see some of that in Daniel chapter 10. So now let's get into the actual vision. And for the sake of time, here's what I'm going to do. I'm actually going to skip verses 1 through 39 of chapter 11. You can go read that, and if you've got all the answers, write a book and send it to me, okay? Um, but here, let me just, let me just um, since I'm skipping a giant chunk, here's what I'm going to do. I, wanna, I do want to give you a summary of what's happening, okay? So these verses describe the development of two kingdoms. Um, described here in the text, you've got the kingdom of the north and the kingdom of the south. The kingdom of the north represents Syria and the Seleucid dynasty. The kingdom in the south represents Egypt and the, the Ptolemy dynasty. This morning you got an extra handout. It lists all of the, the kind of kings and emperors and stuff that came within that period of history. Um, and, and without getting into the nuts and bolts of it, um, you should know that the history of these two dynasties is full of deception, posturing, political maneuvering, and murder. It's full of an enormous amount of bloodshed. And all of it is kind of taking place while Rome is becoming, you know, the big dog um, in the known world at the time. And so one might begin to wonder why, like, why is this important for Daniel to know? Like, what, what, what does this have to do with the people of God? Well, Daniel Aiken, he writes this, and, and I think he's, it's really helpful. He says, in the grand scheme of world history, Egypt and Syria, they don't amount to much during this period of time, which is uh, about 323 to 163 BC. The more significant global power is Rome, the new bad boy arising in the background. However, the reason Egypt and Syria receive all the press here is because they are important in their relationship to Israel and the people of God. They will play political ping pong with the nation of Israel for almost 175 years until the evil Antichrist type figure Antiochus IV or Antiochus Epiphanes comes on the scene. So verses 1 through 39, that's what it's all about, this ping-ponging. And if you were here a few weeks ago when uh, we preached on Daniel 8, and I got to preach on Daniel 8, uh, we talked a ton about Antiochus Epiphanes. So you might be familiar with kind of what he did and, and the way he really sought to um, strip uh, Israel of their religious identity, right? Um, if you weren't, it's two weeks ago, you should go listen to it on the podcast. But... Here's where Daniel 11 diverges from Daniel 8. Sinclair Ferguson describes, describes it well. He says, It traces in greater detail the flow of the future already outlined in chapter 8. It also seems to merge that flow into the final consummation of the conflict between darkness and light in a description that appears to transcend the events of ongoing history. It is in the light of this daunting prospect that the heavenly figure brings words of encouragement Restraint and joy to Daniel. And so we have to understand something in order uh, for passages like this to really make even the slightest bit of sense. 
underneath all of human history, there is this battle taking place. Again, we're talking about unseen things, right? There is this battle taking place even now between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. And at the center of that conflict are the people of God. It's been the case for a long, 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 long time, and it will continue to be the case. Nothing is neutral. No one is neutral in this this cosmic battle. In fact, all that God made and all that God loves, his enemy hates. Satan, the, the, the serpent in Genesis 3, the beast in the book of Revelation, it's all the same enemy and he hates all that God loves. And at the top of his, this is what I hate list, are the people of God. Now, I've already mentioned that God's revelation of suffering and conflict, it's never meant to turn the people of God inward in fear. It's never meant to cause the people of God to go, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? That's not the point. It's always meant to strengthen and stiffen the spines or the backs of the people of God because he never leaves his people without hope. He never, ever, ever leaves his people without hope. In fact, I'll just tell you, church, the people of God, you are never without hope. And, and it's not because there's something in us that we can draw on. Like our hope is not, my greatest hope is not in me. But my, my greatest hope and your greatest hope is in the promise of God. The promises of God. The faithfulness of God. The activity of God throughout all of human history. So let's look at verse 40 of chapter 11. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. By the way, these are like the, the enemies of God in the Old Testament. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver and all the precious things of Egypt and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train, but news from the east and the north shall alarm him and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction and he shall pitch his palatial tent between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. And here's where I really want you to, to key in here. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. So if you're not familiar with biblical prophecy, the languages, the imagery, it can all be massively confusing. And, and what tends to happen is that when God reveals things, um, specifically events throughout human history to his prophets, and we read about them in the Old Testament, it's almost like there are things that he reveals that are on, like they're happening right now. It's kind of current. There are things that he reveals that will be the near future and things that will be far, 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 far out future. And when the prophet receives them, it's kind of like he just sees them all. They're all kind of happening when he receives them. And so if you imagine looking out on the mountains and you see these peaks of mountains that all look like they're actually the same height, but in reality, there are these massive amounts of space in between them. That's kind of how biblical prophecy works sometimes. And so it can feel and seem sort of convoluted. And I say all that to say, 
And when you get to verses 40 and 45, they're unique because what does the messenger say? He says, this is at the time of the end, which has been widely understood and believed to mean the end of time itself. So he spends all this time talking about, you know, Persia and Egypt and Syria and Greece and Alexander the Great and Antiochus, Epiphanes. And then he's like, by the way, this is for the end of all of human history. And this king described here and likely in verses 36 through 39 as well is believed by most to be the Antichrist. Now, may not surprise you to find out um, that after reading about six or seven commentaries this week, I found um, about six or seven different interpretations of this passage. That may not surprise you. may also not surprise you that there are different views and beliefs that are held by people who love Jesus and they're wonderful and they're orthodox and they're brilliant, all about who and what and when the Antichrist will come. Like some are going to point to 2 Thessalonians 2 and they're going to say it's one, it, there, there's a single Antichrist and we're kind of waiting and when he comes, it's going to be like Armageddon and Jesus will come back and he'll be squashed, but it's a, it's a, it's a figure, there's one figure. And then some are going to point to 1 John 2 and they're going to say, well, actually the Antichrist is not really just a person, but it's like a spirit or a personification of absolute evil and disdain for God and for his people. And so there's actually like a bunch of antichrists who are going to rise up throughout history, but there's not just one. And then you're going to have people who are like, what if it's both? And they're the worst. They're so not helpful. Um, But regardless of one's position, whether it's one person or many or both or whatever, here's the description of the antichrist that I think we really need to actually pay attention to. Verse 36, he's going to seek autonomy. I'm just kind of summarizing these. He's going to seek autonomy. He's going to do what he desires and he will submit to no authority, especially the authority of God. Also verse 36, he's going to blaspheme the name of God and seek to elevate himself as God. He will disregard God's ordained pattern for humanity and sexuality, meaning he's going to, this antichrist, whether it's a person or a spirit or whatever, like they're going to take what God's created and called good and they're going to try and redefine it. And so they're going to say, hey, let's do morality on our own terms. This is what's right and what's wrong and what's good and what's evil. He will be powerful and ruthless and he will seek to control peoples and nations and he's going to do it through war and violence, meaning there's going to be a lot of blood shed. And in verse 41, we read that he will oppose the people of God. And now while this vision itself, as bleak as it is, would certainly leave Daniel and those reading his book or reading his, these visions, it would leave them feeling hopeless if you were to exclude verse 45, but verse 45 is there. And it says this, yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. And so for all the ink that's been spilled and will continue to be spilled, explaining who and what and when regarding the Antichrist, it takes one single sentence for the Lord's messenger to articulate his end. Paul, in 2 Thessalonians 2, he writes this in verse 8, and then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill. (laughs) How's he going to kill him? With the breath of his mouth. The breath of his mouth. Not with the strength of his arm, with the breath, with a word. He'll be squashed and he will bring, uh, be brought to nothing by the appearance of his coming. T.S. Eliot writes this, This is the way that the Antichrist ends, not with a bang, but a whimper. And while I know that Bobby is going to, he's going to bring it all home in a couple weeks, preach on Daniel chapter 12, I couldn't help but dip my toes into chapter 12 because the hope that the Lord gives Daniel is not just in the fact that 
the Antichrist will be squashed and that the, the that evil will be eradicated. It's not just that, but if you look at verse if you look at chapter 12, verse 1, what comes with the eradication of evil and what comes with the, the squashing of the Antichrist, he says, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never, uh, such as never has been seen. There was a nation, uh, yeah, there was a nation till that time. That was clunky. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, meaning many who have died will come back to life. Some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, I want you to shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. And so what hope is Daniel offered here towards the end of his vision? It's the hope of resurrection. Right, deliverance for those whose names are written in the book, presumably, according to Revelation 21, the Lamb's book of life. And so what hope are the people of God offered here in this final vision? It's this, this hope of resurrection. Like what hope do we find in this obscure Old Testament prophecy? It's the hope of resurrection. And, and what's interesting is if you were to take all of the visions that Daniel receives and all of the dreams in the book of Daniel, if you were to take them beginning with Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2 of the statue, you remember that one? If you've been hanging around with us, uh, or, or his vision, uh, or Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 4, or Daniel's vision in chapter 8, and then this vision in the final three chapters, if you were to take all of them and to consider what they might be telling, they're actually telling the same exact story. Like what they're trying to communicate, all of them together, is that Babylon is actually an archetype of the kings and the kingdoms that are going to rise and fall throughout human history. So the point being, there's not really just one Babylon. There will always be another Babylon. Always. One after another, they're going to all be the same. Nations will rise. They're going to attempt to exalt themselves to the place of God. They're going to try to define good and evil and right and wrong and what's beautiful and true on their own terms. They're going to conquer. They're going to kill. They're going to expand. And then someone's going to come and knock them off the pedestal. And there's the new big dog. Welcome to the new Babylon. This is portrayed so clearly in Psalm 2, the first three verses. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And in the middle of all of this are the people of God. In the middle of it all. And the greatest hope the people of God have had and the greatest hope the people of God have today, we as followers of Jesus, is the promise of resurrection life. This promise that nations will rise and fall, that kings will seek to establish themselves as God and they will meet their end because another one's going to come. And then you've got this glorious promise of resurrection is the greatest hope for all who believed in the gospel of Jesus. And so to that end, what is the gospel? Well, the gospel is that the God who created all things, the cosmos, made you in his image. He sent his one and only son, Jesus, the son of God, perfect, sinless. He lived a life in obedience and full accordance to the father's will. And then he went to the cross and he died 
and he suffered a criminal's death as he hung on the cross. And as he hung, he bore the entire, the full wrath of God for all who would come to him in faith. Meaning the wrath that that God intended for sinners, Jesus took it upon himself for all who come to him in faith. And then on the third day, he rose. He resurrected, and his resurrection is described as a first fruits, as a precursor of the resurrection to come. But that's not it. I mean, that's not where the gospel really stops, because after that resurrection, Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, and in First Peter, Peter writes that he's gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him, that he sits on his throne. He possesses all authority and all honor and all glory. Like, do you remember that Psalm, Psalm 2, the first three verses that we read about the kings and nations and stuff? Well, verse 4 says, he who sits in the heaven laughs. Well, at what? Well, at the feeble attempts of kings and nations to play God. Well, why? Well, because he knows that the time is short. And when it expires, he will return and make all of his enemies a footstool. And until that day, the people of God, we live in the space between looking at the injustice, the corruption, the loss of life, the twisting and the warping of God's design for all things, sexuality, identity, manhood, womanhood, just personhood. We look at all of that and we don't retreat in fear and go, oh my gosh, it's going to get so bad out there. No, we engage because as I mentioned earlier, there's actually a lot more happening than what we can see with our eyes. And while we could do an entire sermon series on all of that, and maybe we will, I don't know, that's not my job. I'm going to give you one way that we can actually engage. And it's the way that Daniel was engaging. When we opened up chapter 10, he was praying. As the people of God, we ought to pray. If we believe that there's power in the prayers of the people of God, why wouldn't we do it? Why wouldn't we pray for ourselves, our own hearts? Why wouldn't we pray for our spouse, for our children? Like pray for your parents. Pray for your grandparents. If you have that privilege, if they're still alive, pray for them. Pray for your neighbors, like your literal neighbors, the people who live next to you in the apartments or in the homes or whatever. Maybe you don't like them. Maybe they're kind of grumpy. Pray for them. Pray for your friends. Pray for your coworkers. Pray for your church, your pastors, your, your leaders in the church. Pray for your, your child's school. Pray for the schools in your community, even if you don't have kids, even if you don't send your kids to school. Still pray for the schools in your community, the teachers, the people serving there, working there. Pray for this city. Pray for your city if you live somewhere like Taylor or something. Pray for our state. Pray for our nation. Pray for the people that God has appointed to lead our state and our nation. And then pray for those all over the world who are suffering because of injustice and corruption and the effects of sin. Now, I'm sure I've left some folks, some categories of people out of this list, but I hope my point has been made that we ought to be a praying people. And as you pray, posture yourself as Daniel did. Again, again, chapter 10, verse 12, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard and I've come because of your words. Like Psalm 34, 15, which Peter picks up in 1 Peter 3 says, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. And again, I don't pretend to understand all of this, but I I do believe this to be true, that heaven and hell move when the people of God pray. 
And so kingdoms and nations will rise and fall. That's nothing new. The people of God will suffer, caught in the crosshairs when we stand firm for the Lord, marginalized when we refuse to bow the knee to the whims and wishes of the antichrists that might be popping up. Perhaps things will get worse for us later. They have for plenty of other believers around the world. None of that's new. And while we long for the day of resurrection life in Christ, we pray earnestly and diligently and steadfastly and we remain watchful in it because the God who hears is the God who alone has the authority and the power to bring about resolve and transformation that will last long after I do. In the world and in our nation, yes, but also church in us and in those whom God has placed in our immediate context. So with that, let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that you're a God who hears. I thank you that you're a God who responds, that you're a God who speaks, that you've inclined your ear to hear the cries of your people, the cries of the righteous, and that you, Father, delight to respond. I thank you that in a way I cannot even hardly articulate where my words fall so short, God. I thank you that, that when your people pray, heaven and hell shift. That things actually happen. Things that maybe we may never, ever, ever see in our lifetime, but things actually happen. Things that have eternal impacts, not just temporal ones. I thank you for the hope of resurrection that as as we move through life, as we move closer to that day of resurrection, knowing that you've promised that your people will suffer and in what degree and in what way, you know, those are things that we find out and we we, we navigate in real time, God, but you, you've said this is going to happen and yet you've not left your people without hope. And the hope is that one day you will return and we will be resurrected to see you, to be with you forever and ever and ever because of what you've accomplished in your son, Jesus. So we thank you for that beautiful, wonderful truth. We pray all these things in the name of Christ. Amen.